This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, all you happy warriors, passionate devotees of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally and unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism, as well as all the many social pathologies that it generates. When I promise to reveal how the world really works, it's in the hope that you will help defeat these pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans of history who possess neither Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome. These hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media, our education, our government bureaucracies, our entertainment institutions, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women. But oh, what damage they do manage to inflict. But never fear. Here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, I solemnly commit to help you transform timidity to triumph. Together, we will replace diffidence with determination and displace the divided counsels of doubt with the steady eyes and firm hearts of those who, just like us, know where they are going and know just how they're going to get there. We strive for success, first with our families, and our faith, and then our finances, and our friends forming bonds of the like-minded, after which we will then be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and dictates of those who consider themselves to be our superiors our elites, our betters, our bosses, our rulers. But before we change the world, we have to change ourselves. Before we make the world a better place, we've got to make our own homes and our own businesses better places. And then our efforts and our dreams become leveraged, and together we achieve so much more. The two sure ways of building an eternal bridge over the dark abyss of mortality is by building a family and building our finances. And we do that by connecting with others who share our worldview or even others who share part of our worldview. And isn't that what we really are doing on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show? And so the message is connect. And one of the ways we connect 
is by understanding some of the things that are going on in the world around us. Let me give you an example. To start with, let me just establish with you that the way that certain basic facts that are just realities about us and about the world in which we live, how these things really shape human existence and sculpt the evolution of cultures. Let me give you an example. Uh, we all need water. That's a basic. And so we tend to establish habitations uh, near water. If you look at the Las Vegas Valley in Nevada, uh, you can actually see how it began. They call, you know, there were places, there were different ranches. And where did those ranches spring up? Uh, around uh, water fountains, around springs, about, uh, about uh, uh, lakes, small, small lakes. But th there, was w there were water sources, and that's where settlements in the valley sprang up. Today, those settlements are simply different suburbs of greater Las Vegas. But if you look at the development of the city, it was driven by the presence of water. Uh, Palm Springs, another desert town. It's, it's there because of a huge dam that was constructed nearby. And, uh, and similarly, uh, Las Vegas also, a huge dam, the Hoover Dam built not far away, changed everything. Water is a reality. And because we are so dependent upon water, uh, we can rely on the fact that throughout the course of history, humans have tended to settle near water. Now, salt water uh, is another story that the, that is a need for trade, and I've discussed in the past why so many cities are built on water near harbors. But okay, that's a reality. Uh, not in any way to be vulgar for its own sake, but uh, simply, as always, in order to reveal how the world really works, uh, let, me, let me talk about... A simple reality. The way the good Lord created us, or for those of you who prefer that uh, the way we evolved from orangutans, uh, is that we have to discharge waste produce from our body. And it's called defecation in polite company. Um, okay, fine. So uh, what do we do? We, um, we try as much as possible to distance ourselves from that. And amazingly enough, waterborne sanitation really didn't show up until the middle of the 19th century. Until that time, it was not uncommon, even in the West, to find that the streets of cities like London uh, early in the morning would run with sewage. And they used to have um, stepping stones in small uh, cobblestone alleys that you can still see where you can step from raised stone to raised stone. So you're not actually walking in the human filth that flowed down. This is even in London. So uh, obviously in uh, other places around the world, this state of affairs minus the stepping stones persisted into late 
20th, well, I wouldn't say late, way, well into the 20th century. Um, not uncommon. Parts of uh, Asia, Arabia, Africa, uh, not uncommon to find uh, streets running with sewage. And that way the sewage would flow. Sometimes a rainfall would uh, remove the stench and be very welcome. Uh, but in general, eventually, all that sewage found its way into the water supply, and it created problems and disease. Uh, if it was an African village near a river, the river carried it away. So for hundreds of years, that's how that worked. But uh, now many people get cause and effect switched back to front. Many people say, uh, well, what happened is, as the West became more sophisticated, they developed waterborne sanitation systems, and they were able to move the, uh, the, the sewage into underground piping. Whoa, right, that's what happened. It, okay, back to front. It's an equation that reads both ways, and the part that people don't pay a lot of attention to, and it's the part I want to emphasize in this particular show, is that part of the reason that the West prospered, one of the reasons that the West developed and thrived, is because they already had a value of cleanliness and hygiene. They were already committed to distancing themselves from the sewage. What am I talking about? Well, it's... Um, it's, it's, it's a difficult thing to wrap oneself around, but give it a shot here with me as uh, we, we work our way through it. By, by that I mean to say, uh, try not to, and I know this is hard, I, I mean I'm susceptible to it as well, even though I know better, uh, and that is the tendency to immediately reject something that strikes us as disturbing, that, is, uh, that, that raises cognitive dissonance in our hearts, things that we hear that are just way against everything we've always assumed and believed, and what's more, a tiny little secret alarm goes off inside our souls telling us this is the first step of a slippery slope. If I let this idea into my consciousness, this is going to take me down a path I'm not sure I want to go. And so uh, the, the strange and novel idea here is that um, defecation is one of the ways in which we resemble animals. Because here we are, as human beings, we are extremely unusual. Uh, we're very different from cows and cats and camels and kangaroos. We're different from butterflies and baboons. And we're different from whales and dolphins and horses. We really are very different. And one of the ways in which we're different is that we are suspended awkwardly, but delicately and exquisitely between the angels and the apes. We're not angels because we have bodies, but we're not apes because we have souls. And uh, we, we are this, this strange and unique creature that thrives best when we keep the angel side of our cultures alive and in the forefront of our consciousness. 
And the more that we tend to be surrounded in our own lives by constant and inescapable reminders of the ape part of our beings, the less we demand of ourselves, the less we aspire to, and the more we surrender to our baser selves. And so the development of sanitation, the ability to uh, remove ourselves far from the defecation, the act of defecation, which is why we reserve a special little room and why we even tend to over-decorate that room, right? I've spoken about this in the past. I mean, really, monogram towels and little bars of soap formed to resemble seashells. <laughs> really? Is, is that what we have to spend money on? Well, apparently, yes. Uh, we, we keep that little room separate because that allows us to, if you like, sequester our ape part of our natures, the ape part of our natures, and allowing the angel part of our natures uh, to flower and to flourish. So, yes, as technology and education arrived, so we found the means of, uh, of removing the defecation from our day-to-day -day living so we don't have to uh, smell the stench of sewage when we open the door or open the window in our homes uh, because it's no longer flowing down the streets. But at the same time, the desire towards the angel side of our natures, the desire to distance ourselves from the ape side, well, that is partially what stimulated us to force our way forward into a world with waterborne sanitation. So in other words, it's this is a very basic thing, right? The One of the first things a Martian would notice about human beings is the strange uh, thing we have, which is every now and then we remove, expel stuff from our body, which is pretty worthless. And what's more, smells badly too. Uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, as a stimulus to us to get rid of it, to move it further away, and to not be surrounded by day-to-day -day reminders of the fact that there is a side of us that resembles the apes. Because the more we distance ourselves from that, the more we can focus on the side that resembles the angels. And that's the side that lets us write music and lets us write poetry and lets us create uh, iPhones and Android phones and allows us to build airplanes and machinery and to uh, devote ourselves to arts like cooking and all kinds of other things. All of that flows from the angel side of our natures. And so this need uh, to establish waterborne sewage, yeah, that is a function of a certain reality, a certain basic fact about our bodies. And um, when we come back, let me tell you about... Uh, how late it was, shockingly late, that the largest and most important city in America got water, was able to get to a point where water was brought into people's homes in sufficient quantity, quantity to allow us to flush away the results of our defecation. How did that happen? 
Well, I'll tell you about that in just a moment. But first of all, the part of the segment where I annoy you, not deliberately, I wish I didn't have to, but you know what, it's called advertising, and if I don't tell you what I can do for you, then I have only myself to blame when you don't buy my wares. And that's one of the reasons that it's an old tradition among Jews to adopt last names that describe what you can do for other people. It's like the ultimate business card. You shake hands with somebody and you say, uh, you know, hi, my name is Weinstein. Well, perhaps uh, you wouldn't want to say that today with uh, Comrade Harvey um, out there. But uh, if you did, automatically the person would say, oh, you supply wine. Oh, well, that's very interesting. Do you have any French Bordeaux uh, in your collection? That may have betrayed how little I know and understand about weenology. But uh, the point being that advertising is a good thing. It's a worthy thing. And the truth is that uh, whilst many of us complain about the advertisements, uh, we, we kind of appreciate knowing what's out there. The trouble is many of you are regular listeners, and you've heard me say this uh, by now maybe dozens or scores or maybe hundreds of times, and you say to yourself, oh, come on, please. Okay, well, then you finish it off for me, right? The website is? Come on. Well, if you know it, tell me. I thought you didn't. www.rabbidaniellappin.com And the uh, money-making resource, the resource designed to enhance your ability to increase revenue, is uh, called Prosperity Power. Um, Connect for Success. And it's available for an immediate download uh, for $10, uh, which is kind of nice because it's two hours of instruction. Uh, The kind of thing that um, it works better on audio than verbal just because you need to hear it a few times. So go along, read about it, and I think you'll see that this is something that could make a difference either to you or to somebody in your orbit uh, who you care about enough to help them enhance their money-making ability. And that's actually a large part of what today's show is about. But first of all, I'll tell you about New York as soon as we get back in just a moment. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and Retirement Curveball is a book by a finance expert that I respect, Dr. Tom McPhee. Whether you are thinking about retirement, are already retired, or have never given the big R even a thought, now is the time to welcome the contents of this book into your mind. The book is filled with compelling aha moments and will motivate you to make some highly effective changes in how you manage your money and your life. I know Dr. Tom McPhee and his terrific book, Retirement Curveball, and I do recommend it. Get the book at retirementcurveball.com or on Amazon. Rabbi Daniel Lappin returns with more of How the World Really Works on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. It'll hardly come as a surprise to you that I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing, as always, how the world really works. And, uh, well, we're talking about uh, cities and populations, and... uh, In um, 1850, right, or let's say 1840 to 1850, 
um, New York is the biggest city in the country, the busiest and most important city. It's got just under a million, about between 800 and 900,000 inhabitants. Okay, it's over 10 million today. But uh, New York in 1850, yeah, a little under a million people. Uh, meanwhile, Philadelphia is just under half a million. Baltimore is 200,000. And uh, Boston, about 175,000. Now, a few years earlier, it was by no means certain that New York was going to grow faster than, shall we say, Philadelphia or Baltimore. Uh, there, there were busier harbors. There were older cities and more important things going on there. But one thing changed it, and it's a great story. I've covered it extensively in an earlier podcast. Some of, I wonder if some of you remember when I did a show. Uh, it's, it's in the last year or two. I did a show on the Erie Canal, opened in the early 1800s, and utterly changed everything because all of a sudden New York became the marketplace, not just for New York, but for the entire Hudson Valley, for all of upstate New York, all the way through Rochester to Buffalo and the Great Lakes region. Why? Because it used to be very, very expensive to move cargo, skins, wood, coal, iron, anything you wanted to move uh, from, you know, from the Buffalo area, from the Chicago area to New York. It was, in, it was so expensive that it raised the price of everything very high. Along comes the Erie Canal, and stuff can be put on a barge, and at minimal cost, the transportation uh, expenses plummet, making New York. I mean, all of Europe knew that if you want to sell stuff to America, you offload in New York. You want to buy stuff from America, you do it in New York. And, uh, and so New York then started growing like crazy. And as I say, by about 1840 or so, close on a million people, which is huge for a city in that period, and uh, no waterborne sewage, very uh, problematic water supplies, because contamination from sewage into the water table meant that uh, water was increasingly hard to get. And so what did they do? Again, you know, just this is truly remarkable uh, when you compare what other parts of the world were doing, which is very little. And in America, 1840, they build a 40-mile aqueduct. Now, just so you are able to um, absorb what this means, you know, whether, whether you're into this kind of stuff or not, just think about the human ingenuity that makes this possible. Uh, think about the design, the engineering, organizing Tens of thousands of men who are going to actually do the physical work. How about finding the money, raising the capital, keeping track of all of that? It's pretty amazing. And what is the aqueduct? It's a tunnel, brick-lined, yes, brick-lined, um, oval in cross-section, about eight feet high by about six to seven feet wide. So it's huge, all right, right? A couple of people can walk side by side standing upright down this tunnel, 40 miles from the Croton River in upstate New York, Westchester County, 40 miles all the way to Manhattan. Now, those of you who, um, who know New York a little bit, maybe you've been there, maybe you live there, there's an old bridge. It's the oldest bridge in New York. It's called the High Bridge. 
and it links uh, Manhattan to the Bronx over the Harlem River. Uh, it's an iron bridge over the river and stands about 140 feet off the water. And what was it built for? To carry this aqueduct across the river into Manhattan in 1840-something, 1848 maybe, somewhere there. That's what it was built for. And uh, amazingly enough, uh, this the the water then this whole thing is built underground um it's got a very precise slope so as the water flows through it fast but not too fast flows at about two miles an hour uh, so you know it takes a few hours but it doesn't matter once it starts flowing it's continuous because the water is pouring into it at its northern end pouring out at the southern end into a huge reservoir in central park which has since been uh, closed up and turned into a grassy lawn area. But uh, that was the water system. And all of a sudden, there's an abundance of water in New York. And uh, not only is there fresh, clean drinking water that's been starting to be piped into homes, but there's enough to operate a sewage system. And there it is. It works incredibly. And I just want to remind you that it works both ways. A developed prosperous civilized culture produces waterborne water systems sanitation systems but also a commitment to cleanliness knows if your cultural commitment and by the way it's a cornerstone of judeo-christian thinking i'm not going to uh, go into the biblical aspects of it now but um for those of you who are interested you'll find it in deuteronomy uh, second part of the book, it has to do with uh, uh, soldiers being told of the Hebrew army to carry shovels so as they will never actually have to see or be near their um, uh, body waste idea again, because your ability to achieve great things is associated with your ability to stop seeing yourself as being close to the apes and start seeing yourself as close to the angels. So how we see ourselves is terribly important. And of course, this is something that any athletic coach knows, anybody who's been involved in sports or athletics, everybody knows the power that comes from a human being whose belief system is modified. So, you know, the old adage, you know, when you believe you can win, you can and when you believe you can't, you won't. And uh, in the same way here, when you are forcibly reminded of your ape-like similarities, so your creative powers are diminished. You don't see yourself as able to strive upwards to build or design or invent or write or create uh, or, or do anything because you just become essentially uh, a consumer. That's all. You become somebody who who is ape-like, and it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's a tragedy, but it's exactly what happens. Well, uh, I will tell you that it's not only a case of defecation, but it's also the reason why cultures that prosper and strive and achieve and reach levels of education and civilization, civiliz cultures that do that are always cultures that keep sexuality private right not puritanical not puritanical private 
right? And uh, there's a lot of tendency to dismiss the Victorian period and think, oh, they were so puritanical about sex. That's not what it's about, right? You have no idea what they actually did or didn't do or what they, all we know is that there was a propriety, a sense that any activity in which we perceive ourselves as resembling the apes is something that is kept private. And that's why almost anybody, even in this day and age where things have become so unhealthily sexualized in the extreme, even today, you'll even hear young people saying, uh, you know, TMI, too much information, or PDA, you know, public displays of affection. There is a feeling that sexuality, and when you think about it, the act of physical intimacy between a man and a woman, uh, you know, is, is animalistic in its appearance at the very least. Yes, obviously it's surrounded by emotion and, and feeling and, and things that and certainly do distinguish it from the animal world. Another area in which it's distinguished from the animal world, as far as we are aware, is that unlike the animal world, the participants in human coupling care as much or more about the uh, enjoyment and pleasure of the other person as much as they do of their own. That is, again, unique to human beings. But nonetheless, uh, nonetheless, it is hard to escape the fact that the actual process uh, seems to be not that different from what animals do. Uh, I mean, there are even certain styles of making love that have names associated with animals, for what it's worth. So, uh, at any point, that at any re at any uh, event, that is the the concept, and so cultures that are overtly and publicly sexualized tend to achieve less. Uh, it's not hard to see in, in America itself, even in the United States, let alone in, in other countries. It's also obvious, but I'm more familiar on a day-to-day -day basis with life in these United States. And uh, it's not hard to tell that cultures in, that allow their children to become sexualized very early tend to achieve less. They just do. And the part of the reason is the spiritual reality, which is, obviously, that uh, the more engaged you are publicly and openly with activities that resemble what apes do more than what angels do, this tends to move us along that spectrum line towards the ape, towards the animal, and it makes us see ourselves as animalistic rather than as angel-like. It makes us see ourselves as consumers rather than as creators. And that's really the important distinction, right? Angels are at the creating end of the spectrum. Animals are at the consuming end of the spectrum. And so uh, cultures that um, are over-sexualized, where sexuality is very public, uh, diminish their creative ability. Now, uh, you might say, well, look, America is certainly very sexualized today, and I agree with you, it is, and look how creative we are, to which my answer is, you have absolutely no idea of how creative we would be if we were not 
overly publicly sexualized the way we are. It exerts a break on our creative abilities. It is an anchor, a drag on our ability to reach for the stars. Um, and, and you can see how it's deteriorated, by the way. It was round about um, 1980 that they started naming cocktail drinks with sexual titles. It's an insanity when you think about it. I mean, let alone the fact that it's embarrassing, but the whole point is that it it, it takes into the public arena that which should be private. And so even if you're having a drink with your date, um, to say I'd like uh, a, uh, a vodka and orange juice is one thing. But to say that um, I want, well, I, I've, I've got to decide how much, well, maybe I'm going to tell you, just in order to really make sure you, you, I do everything in my power to help you get this point, that the deterioration, I mean, I often speak about, you know, the beginning of the 1960s is when it all began to change, and sure enough, but, uh, but even relatively recently, right, the 1980s, 1986, uh, they came up with a peach liqueur, um, peach schnapps, and then uh, some some barman, or maybe maybe it was actually the, um, the, uh, the the company that manufactured this drink. Perhaps I think it was them mixed it with orange juice, and they called it a fuzzy navel. Okay, fine. It would seem to be a relatively innocuous term, excepting that well, it's just it's already just the beginning. I agree, it requires a heightened sensitivity to see anything wrong with, you know, saying the words fuzzy navel in public. But it is the beginning, right? It's the start. And uh, and that's why, you know, I spoke at the time when Bill Clinton moved certain behaviors and words into the public arena because they were on the news every night. Uh, he was doing a disservice. He had done an enormous disservice to the country because once again, it made us see ourselves as a little closer down the scale towards the animal end than the angel end. And uh, sadly, it, it's, it's had its effect right on all of us, very subtle. But each and every one of us is impacted by this uh, silent cultural signaling that makes each of us think a little less of ourselves and aim just a little bit lower. Well, it didn't stop with a fuzzy navel, of course. It didn't take long. A year later, I think it was, they came up, and you'll pardon me, I'm going to tell you these words, just because I want you to see the insanity of this. Yeah, you know, we're so accustomed to them. You sort of smile at them, and you think it's innocuous, but it really isn't at all, because sex is supposed to be private. When it's, in, when it's private, then we do not have it thrust into our face, that the actual process is animalistic in its ridiculousness on a certain level, if you know what I mean. And so uh, uh, they came up with drinks called uh, silk panties, slippery nipple, a red-headed slut, if you don't mind. So just imagine the impact it has on people who are having a few drinks and enjoying a social evening and the drink culture, the cocktail culture, forces them in public to say words 
you know, like silk panties or red-headed slut or sex on the beach. Uh, these are names of cocktails. You say these things to a bartender, and he doesn't even smile or smirk because he, to him it's just a drink. But it isn't really. It's part of a contextualizing that moves the population a little bit down the side. When you say moves the population, you might say, to yourself, well, I'm immune to it. You know, I don't go into bars. I don't drink that stuff. Yeah, I understand. You might also say I'm immune to advertising. Uh, people can spend as much as they like uh, running a car ad for a, a Lexus on, on a Super Bowl game, but makes it's wasted money as far as I'm concerned because I'm not buying a Lexus. And, you know, many people say that, and for many people it's true. But the reality is that for many other people it isn't. And obviously the culture as a whole, when you look at 300 million people, enough people are impacted by that ad played again and again and again that eventually they too will go out and get a Lexus automobile. If it didn't pay, the company wouldn't expend the budget on the advertising. And so it is here. Yeah, you personally may be immune. I, you know, I, I don't really, uh, I can't think of how many decades ago I was in a cocktail bar. I really can't. But I do know that, I mean, I've heard these terms. I've seen them in, in books. I've heard them used. And every time it enters my head, I know. Every time my ears hear those words, I know that it is making me just a little less effective at being creative because creativity belongs to our angel nature. It doesn't belong to our animalistic nature. And everything we do to remind ourselves of our animalistic nature has an impact. Uh, you know, Rudy Giuliani's uh, mayoral uh, stint in New York popularized something well-known in uh, sociology and uh, economics. It's called the broken window theory. And it's something that any landlord, anyone who owns a building or, or is involved in maintenance knows. And that is that uh, if you don't fix the broken window quickly, other windows get broken as well. In other words, there's always a destructive element in society. There's always people who think, uh, you know, well, whatever. There are people who, who, uh, who do that. And uh, if you don't fix broken things right away, the tendency is for more things to become broken as well. The, the attitude is a don't care attitude. And uh, a small, small step on the road, or shall I say on the slippery slide from a nice neighborhood to a slum, is when a broken window does not get repaired. And so it is a, uh, an inevitable but significant step on the slippery slide towards an animalistic perception of society is when some other, another example of public sexuality intrudes into our consciousness. Uh, or, or maybe, as I discussed in a very recent podcast, maybe it's, it's language which revolves around words having to do with the bedroom and the bathroom. Every time those words are used in public, it's another broken window as the neighborhood slides down that slope from nice neighborhood to slum, as the culture slides down that slippery slope from an angel-looking culture towards an animalistic-looking culture. And the result is a decline in the civilization 
a decline in its economic abilities and ultimately a decline even in its defense capabilities. Now, uh, I'm going to stop and end the segment here, take a quick break before we continue, but uh, how is this very hard? I mean, are you shaking your head at me and saying, oh, come on, Lappin, you're now pushing us too far. Nobody can buy this argument you're making. I hope that isn't the case, but uh, if it is, I, I want you to tell me because – I may be reaching for just one bridge too far, as it were. I may be trying to make a case which cannot be made in a one-hour podcast. Maybe it's a case that requires uh, several hours of careful direction and instruction. Maybe we've got to work through many, many examples from history so that little by little you can see for yourselves that – uh, societies decline and decay over centuries. Many, many, many different societies. Their decline and their decay is almost always inevitably associated with an increased self-perception of animalism. Um, not, you know, not an accident that uh, this is where we have been for the last sixty years or so. Anyway, uh, I hope it isn't, it isn't pushing the case too far beyond what is comfortable to wrap oneself around. At any rate, let me know. And you know how to let me know? At my website. That's right. Susan and I hang out at rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, it's right there where you can uh, – not only can you read back issues of Thought Tools and Susan's Musings and Ask the Rabbi. You can see our TV show. You can do all kinds of things. But above all – you can communicate with us. There's a contact us tab, and uh, you go over there. You let us know what you think. In this case, uh, am I uh, making the case for something that just sounds improbable and ridiculous? I hope not, because I can assure you I'm telling you the truth. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, um, special price on a fabulous resource, uh, the um, it's called Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. And uh, what it does is, uh, is, is show the relationship between our ability to connect and our ability to increase revenue, along with very practical strategies for doing just that. RabbiDanielLappin.com. Alternatively, you can also go by YouNeedARabbi.com. Either way works. Your rabbi, that's me, back with you in just a moment. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin only on the Blaze Radio Network on demand. Hello, everybody. We're back. The Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show continues. As I remind you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And some of the things we're talking about today that never change are that uh, human beings have certain basic realities. We have things that tie us to the angels. The fact that we are able to think abstractly, the, thing, the fact that we can communicate, the fact that we laugh, the fact that we bond with one another, 
uh, in a way that is quite different from the way animals bond. All of those things serve as, as reminders that we are actually close to the angels. And then there are other parts of us that remind us that we're also close to the animals. Uh, those have to do with uh, things we've been speaking about and explain why it is that the most developed cultures, the most successful group of people, are the people that do not use um, obscenities and vulgarities as part of their general language. They don't use curse words that revolve around sex and defecation. Um, we try and keep that part of things away um, so as that we're able to um, see ourselves as more like angels than like animals, which stimulates our creativity, which stimulates our ability to achieve and accomplish and reach for the stars. So um, all of those things uh, that tend to remind us that we are animals also, we tend to privatize. And uh, groups of people, cultures, that prematurely sexualize children generally do not do well economically. They don't do well culturally or artistically. They just don't, as, as a ten as whether this is in American urban surroundings, whether it is primitive cultures in um, uh, remote jungle areas in South America, generally the um, inability to distance oneself from our waste and our inability to uh, pri keep private the area of sexuality all have negative results. Now, you might say, what about eating, right? Eating is also something that reminds us of our animalistic origins. And so, on the one hand, we have to eat. Without that, we starve. On the other, are you saying that every time we eat, we unavoidably find ourselves subconsciously tugged towards the animal end of the spectrum? And the answer is that's precisely why smart people say a blessing before they eat. Because what that does is elevate the action of eating. So no longer am I merely eating the same way that an animal eats. No! Now I'm eating in order to facilitate my creativity in order to make it easier for me to continue achieving and striving and grasping to become more than I was yesterday. The blessing transforms eating from an animalistic activity into something uniquely human, right? No animals make a blessing. There's something else, and that is that at its most basic level, yes, eating is animalistic. And that is why you will hardly ever, I think you don't, I think I can safely say, never see a photograph of Queen Elizabeth II eating. You don't, photo, photographers are not allowed to show the Queen eating. In exactly the same way, you'll pardon me, they are not allowed to show the Queen doing any of the other things that should be done privately. Eating is also considered to be private. But what about restaurants? Well, uh, restaurants for the longest time only existed for people traveling and on the road. If you were 
at near your home, you would never go and eat in a public place. And restaurants were, it took a long time. It wasn't until the 1800s. Eight, no, you know what? It was 1700s, actually. Mid-1700s that restaurants began to show up. Where? Well, in Paris, of course. Where did you think? Wichita? No, obviously. <laughs> I mean, gosh. Uh, yeah. And restaurants were, um, originally, as I say, they were inns. And it was just one long table, and you joined the innkeeper. You know, maybe he and his family were eating as well. Maybe he just put something out for everybody. And, you know, you didn't have a menu. You just you just had what was there. And then you, you know, then you went to sleep. It was a place you stopped if you were on a trip. And people in those days didn't travel for pleasure. Heaven knows travel was no pleasure. They traveled in order to make a living. And so inns catered to business travelers, uh, you know, predominantly men, but not always only. And, uh, and they supplied them not only with somewhere to sleep, but also with something to eat. But the idea of a restaurant in a city being an elegant place, and even though you are within a few minutes of your home, you might still choose to go and eat in the restaurant. That's a relatively recent development. Why? Because it was perceived, not without merit, that eating was an animalistic activity and therefore belongs in the private arena. Well, things have changed a lot since then, but at least theoretically, in principle, we do understand. It's not an accident. I think I've pointed this out before, that uh, journals that cater to the fast food industry, right? And fast foods began in America in the 1920s, 1930s, and then, of course, um, after World War II, by around about 1960 again, they became huge operations, McDonald's obviously being the most obvious. But journals that cater to the fast food industry have a word uh, that is used to describe their customers. They don't speak of them as customers. They don't speak about them as clients. You know, they use the word as grazers. <laughs> just that's right. Just like cows might be grazing in a field. Uh, so uh, they speak about... Uh, uh, you know, um, the turnover of grazers. Like, how long on average does it take for a grazer to come in, eat his hamburger, and get out? Um, or, you know, uh, will grazers respond to uh, changes in decor? Do the grazers care about the public restroom facilities? These are articles I've seen recently in the various journals catering to uh, fast food franchisees and equipment suppliers, etc., etc., uh, in which they always refer to the customers as grazers. Okay, so all of, uh, all of these things we've been speaking about have uh, been based on human um, facts, things that are just realities about human beings. Uh, how we eat, we need to drink water, how we... Uh, uh, how we uh, uh, re how we get rid of waste product, etc., etc., uh, and now on to the next one, and and perhaps a very important one, and that is, here's a reality: humans age and weaken. Simple reality. It didn't have to be that way, right? If I were to design human beings, I would have designed them to just keep going with an occasional lube job and uh, a tune-up. Yeah, just keep going. 
Uh, but then if I had to design people, I probably would have designed them uh, just using up all food. So it's not necessary for their bodies to expel waste because there wouldn't be any waste. I would recycle and use everything. Um, okay, fine. Regardless, uh, fortunately, the good Lord didn't ask my advice when it came to designing human beings. And there's a very good reason why he created us just the way he did. There are certain principles we understand from the way the body operates, and there are certain timeless truths we can incorporate into our lives based on how the body operates. But uh, what about aging and weakening? Well, well, what that means is that in due course, we are stuck with a problem, and that is we are too old and too weak to take care of our needs ourselves, and we are still living and alive. So certainly some cultures, and I don't have independent verification of this, but uh, I have been given to understand that some cultures used to just do away with the elderly. Um, whether the fact that uh, Inuits would float aged parents out on an ice floe um, to just fade away, uh, I don't know if that's true or not, but I recognize that because of this human reality, the way God created us, we don't always stay strong and vital and powerful and effective and creative. There comes a point where we are not as strong as we were yesterday. We are weaker and less creative and less productive than we were, but we still need to eat. So what happens? Well, people have children, and then they have a cultural system that might say something like, uh, well, how about, uh, and you shall honor your father and your mother, maybe something like that. So as, that, uh, as time goes by, it becomes possible for parents to age, and they have children who then will take care of them. But um, how many children do you need I mean, practically for things to work? Well, um, you could say one, right? But it's putting an incredible burden, asking one person to not only take care of him or herself, but also to take care of two other people. That's hard. So how about two, how about two people? And everybody knows that in order to have two, You've got to have a bit more than two on average, right? Because, you know, not everybody grows to uh, full vitality and uh, some are not as effective and as strong as others. So everybody knows that replacement numbers are not two per couple, but sort of more like two point something. But, you know, most, most couples say to themselves, you know what? We don't, we don't want the burden of taking care of us to fall on just one or two. Um, the reality is there are even emotional burdens, you know, just you're know, watching us get older, having uh, needs, uh, and ultimately having to mourn. You know, why, why not make sure that our children are not alone when that happens? So most people say, you know what, we should have three, four. Uh, other people see the joy of many arrows in their quiver, as, uh, as they say, and, uh, and they might have six or seven or eight children, whatever it is. But um, the, the reality is that you do need 
more people in the village of the next generation than you had in the last generation. And then you'll need more people in the next generation. Why? Very simple. Again, in order to take care of two, you kind of need three or four. And so a population easily doubles or comes close to doubling within a generation. And uh, you think to yourself, oh, what a bad system this is because this is causing overpopulation. Well, apparently the good Lord didn't think so because way back at the beginning of Genesis, the very first instruction that God gives to mankind is be fruitful and multiply. So apparently God didn't say, have children, but be careful not to have too many. It was an open-ended thing. Have children, be fruitful, and multiply. So apparently overpopulation, not a huge concern of the Almighty. Now, some people will say, oh, come on, this is all primitive. This is when people worked in the fields. And so a farmer and his wife had to make sure that they had children to help work the fields and to keep the farm going. But today we have social security. Well, you all know the dreadful financial plight of Social Security. And the reason for that is twofold. Number one, uh, the government is dishonest. And instead of taking all the Social Security taxes that are removed from your paycheck and investing it and making sure that money is there in trust for you to whatever extent it's grown, and even if it's grown just the same as the Standard & Poor Index or the Dow Jones Index, you would be getting so much more than your Social Security payment. But the government actually just moves the, um, the withholding into general funds and then scrambles about trying to pay this generation's Social Security out of the taxes of the next generation. See where we're going? you still need those increased numbers. They still got to be there. So it may sound as if we've moved along to vast sophistication. Nobody, very few people are working in the fields, on farms. No, now they're working in software companies and in auto assembly plants and designing computers. Yeah, that's right. And their payroll taxes go partially and very heavily towards supporting the previous generation. Nothing's changed. And if the population of hardworking, productive people drops, but meanwhile the obligations towards the previous generation stays the same, as, as you'd expect they would for a period of time, well, you've got yourselves a fat problem. And that is, again, why the con instruction for the safe and durable operation of society includes the words, be fruitful and multiply. And, uh, well, take a look at um, what happens about people who say, well, you know what, I leave the government out of it entirely. I, I've made investments. I, I've got a 401k. I've got all kinds of programs and pensions and arrangements that uh, will, will take care of me. All will be fine. And I will address that as soon as we come back in just a moment. But um, my social security system uh, is my business, which is creating resources like Connect for Success, Prosperity Power, two audio CDs, two hours of instruction, which you need to hear not once but several times, and you can listen to it 
before you go to sleep, you can listen to it while you are uh, exercising, while you're commuting in the car, play it through your Bluetooth, but whatever it is, it's an easy, cheap, inexpensive, you're not supposed to say cheap, right, it sounds negative, inexpensive download of only $10 for two hours of instruction. You can download it just as soon as this show's over. Just go to rabbidaniellappin.com and look for Prosperity Power Connect for Success. Uh, you could also do me the favor of letting me know whether this show is working for you. Uh, I ask because I really spent a lot of time during the week thinking about yes and no, and I fluctuated. I really did. I went backwards and forwards. No, it's just it, it's asking too much of an audience to wrap themselves around this complicated an idea in just a short podcast. And then I say, well, no, but, you know, if not now, when? If I don't do it on the podcast, when am I going to do it? It's, you know, all right. So here it is. Does it work for you? Tell me at RabbiDanielLappin.com. I am he, back with you in just a moment. There's still more to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc. Necessities. We have to give them shelter, food, water, and medicine. I disagree, but there's an argument to be made. But there is no argument for any reasonable person to say somebody breaks into a country, and on top of all that other stuff you've given them, we're going to give you free or discounted college at taxpayer expense. The Morning Blaze, weekday morning, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return to Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand, on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and you know how much I appreciate the promotional efforts you make. Uh, Our numbers are growing. I find that gratifying. I find it exciting. And uh, yes, I, I do find it stimulating. Uh, You know, my father uh, was a uh, a consummate professional. He was a great rabbi. And uh, I once saw him um, give a speech. He took me along, and uh, there was – turned out there was a mistake. It was in a very large auditorium. Uh, They set the date. They they, um, uh, made a mess of the, the date. It was actually another date. And so we drove across town, me with my father, for him to give the speech. And, uh, and we got there. And instead of uh, about 2,500 people, as were expected in this large auditorium, there were about uh, maybe 100, maybe 75. I mean, it was ridiculous. And uh, I must say that I fully expected my father to say to the organizers, well, look, I'm really sorry. I, you know, you, you, you blew it. You didn't get your, your dates right. And so these people heard about it, but no one else heard about it. So I don't think you can expect me to do the speech for 50 or 60 or 70 people instead of 2,500 that were expected. But no, he didn't say a single word to them. He uh, acted as if everything was normal. They apologized a few times, and like a, a real gentleman, he assured them that it was no problem. And uh, he um, delivered a phenomenal speech. I couldn't believe my eyes. I sat there with my mouth open in sheer astonishment at this man who had brought me into existence, at the virtuosity and the willpower and the sheer ability to deliver a spell-binding, scintillating speech to an empty auditorium. Well, many years later, 
uh, I was invited to give a speech in Salt Lake City. And, uh, and the woman who'd organized it had done exactly the same thing. And uh, it was supposed to be in a, an auditorium at the university there. And they were expecting about 700 people. And standing room only is what they expected. And 12 people were there. Again, uh, the posters were all <laughs> around the university. I saw them with my own eyes, the posters advertising the event uh, for the previous day. <laughs> so, anyways, I have to tell you that um, my almost irresistible impulse was to say to her, look, I'm really sorry. If you like, we can reschedule it sometime, but this, this isn't an event. And the only thing that made me go through that was my father's, uh, the recollection of, of my father. And uh, he, too, uh, did that. So I, I tried to do the same thing. I assured her no problem, and I uh, did my best to give a speech. But doing it, I was fully aware that the people there were thinking to themselves, you know, this is amazing. This guy's really giving us the speech you would have given even, even if it was full. And they were, I know, they were grateful and impressed, and, uh, and I smiled at that. But I knew, I knew that what I delivered was a poor um, shadow of what I would have delivered to a full auditorium. It was as good as I could do, but it wasn't what my father did. And, uh, and so uh, I tell you, I tell you about that just because um, I, I want you to know that when you do help win new listeners to this show uh, and the download numbers go up and I see that, it does have an impact. Uh, I, I'd love to be able to say that it doesn't, but it really does. And the, uh, and, and the ability to create the show and to impart ancient Jewish wisdom uh, goes up. I get better at it. I get more stimulated. Anyway, I wish it wasn't like that, but it is, so I appreciate whatever you do, and I can assure you I get visibly excited whenever I see the numbers make another jump upwards. So thanks for the time and energy you put into that. And I said I would tell you now, what about folks who say, oh, you know, I don't need children, or we don't need more people in the next generation. I believe there should be zero population growth. If anything, we should diminish the bear, the load that the planet is expected to bear and diminish the stress on the environment. We should have fewer people in the next generation. Um, and I, I'd say, well, you know, what about your, uh, how do you manage when you're old? And they're, well, I've got my pension plans. I've got my 401k. I've got these, I've got these stocks and bonds and shares. Well, um, I just have to remind you that every one of those investments depends on an underlying company. It depends on an underlying economy. And without a growing population, the company is going to shrink. The, the company whose shares make up the basis of your portfolio, it's going to go down. Because, you see, staying the same is not an option. Plants are either growing or they're dying. You know, you they grow to a certain point and then they start dying. Or you might pluck one and put it in a vase on your dining room table. It's now dying. But staying the same isn't a part of nature. 
It's also not a part of business. Businesses cannot stay the same either. Simply not possible. And uh, if the population is dwindling, why then the company that was prospering is now going to do less well. One of the uh, geniuses of uh, Henry Ford back in the early decades of the 20th century was realizing that he's got to make his own workers into customers. They've got to be ones who buy his cars as well. He, Again, just an understanding that you absolutely have to have growing markets. You think to yourself, well, if I just have a market the same size as it was last year, everything will be fine. It isn't true. That's simply not how the world really works in any way at all. So having more people in the next generation uh, makes for a buoyant economy. It makes for uh, more successful societies, and it makes for happier people in an upbeat environment. It's all great, but there is one huge proviso, and I'm sure you know what it is, and that is that while all human beings are loved equally by God, I imagine, uh, not all human beings are equally valuable to society. It just isn't true. Now, I'm not speaking about babies because every baby is equally valuable. The potential of every baby is there. However, what I'm talking about is adults. There are adults who are fantastic creators, and there are other adults who are nothing but consumers. So it's how people live their lives, what their value system is, the uh, self-restraint, the, the, the self-discipline, the dedication to goals. All of that has impact. These are spiritual values that people acquire that make them less or more valuable. And so the worry about, oh, overpopulation, there's too many people, or worse yet, I'm sure you've heard, there's so many new mouths to feed, we're never going to be able to manage, the number of mouths to feed is too high. So this materialistic and Marxist view of humanity is that people are nothing but passive mouths into which food must be stuffed by some humanitarian United Nations agency to keep them alive. Treating human beings, it's worse than treating them as animals because everybody understands that a cow and a sheep have a net plus asset value. Yes, to keep a cow or a sheep alive, you have to buy hay or food or produce. You've got to take care of them. You've got to have a place to house them. Yeah, sure, it costs. If that's the case, why do farmers buy cows and why do farmers acquire sheep if it costs to have them? Well, because they produce so much more than they cost. When the farmer sells the milk that his cow produces, he gets far more money than the cow costs to support in the first place. When the farmer sells the wool that the sheep produces, and so, yes, there's an enormous value. Well, if animals like cows and sheep have a net asset value, how do people have so much trouble understanding that human beings also? Well, part of it is that unlike animals, human beings can be negative. An animal is always productive, but a human being may well not be. And I'm not speaking here about old age. I'm speaking as a person who has been productive. I'm speaking about a person who uh, has just become animalistic in, in, in thought and outlook. You know, he's a consumer. 
He lives for sensual pleasures of food and sex. He lives for luxury and entertainment. And that's, that's all there is. People like that are not producing anything beyond what they consume. And if they are living off public welfare, then they're not even producing what they do consume. So that is well known, that is understood, and I'm not speaking about people in that situation. I'm speaking about the, the vast majority of uh, population that clearly produces more. And the proof of it is that when uh, a thousand people live in a city, they don't just create enough money to provide for their rent and food. They provide enough to build water systems and sanitation systems. They create enough for the excess to build roads and art galleries and museums. And yes, there is an ability of the human being to create so much more value than he or she needs in order to continue living. That's the amazing thing about human beings. And so, therefore, the more the merrier. That's what I'm talking about. Be fruitful and multiply is for the good of everybody. A buoyant, upbeat, jubilant society is a society that is growing. And people say, oh, well, that's why you've got to open borders. There should be no such thing as borders. Open borders. Immigrants should come in from anywhere, anytime. Big mistake. Not true at all. Because they don't share the productive culture. It's a very different thing. A, uh, uh, a human being that once a year goes on a rampage and smashes windshields of cars and overturns cars and sets fires to buildings and breaks window storefronts, uh, that person is not producing more than they are consuming. That person is a net loss for this aggregate total thing we call a human economy. When you bring in immigrants, there is a likelihood, in, as things are at the moment in any, at any rate, that the immigrants you bring in are not going to participate in the productive culture. Therefore, they become consumers and a net burden on this thing we call the economy. So very, very problematic, obviously. But... Uh, it, it really still continues to amaze me that for a mere 60000 a year, you could send your child to Stanford University in Palo Alto, California, um, where they could be educated, you'll pardon me using that word, by a professor who is still on the faculty at Stanford. His name is Paul Ehrlich. And 50 years ago, he wrote a book called The Population Bomb. And the population bomb predicted that, literally, he said, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death by 1980. <laughs> Think about it. And he spoke about the United States undergoing huge social convulsions of riots and chaos out of sheer hunger by people not being able to sustain their lifestyles because they're too many people. And um, that is what uh, Paul Ehrlich, current, he was a professor at Stanford. He still is. His book is filled with uh, cataclysmic forecasts, it's, none of which came to pass, by the way. It's filled 
with absurd doomsday prophecies, none of which came to pass, by the way, and he still serves on the faculty of a major university. And you want to send your children to university? It's unbelievable. Um, Ehrlich, uh, Paul Ehrlich was wrong on absolutely everything. Commodity prices have gone down. Everything except taxation, by the way, uh, and the cost of education, funnily enough, which pays his salary. Uh, education and taxation have gone up, but pretty much everything else has gone down in terms of earning power. You want a pair of shoes? Less than it used to cost in at the time he wrote the book. You want to buy a pound of tungsten or nickel or copper uh, or palladium? Less expensive than it was then. Um, you want to buy clothing? Less expensive. Now, housing is more expensive. Again, government um, fiat has made that the case, and, uh, and there's a very good reason for why housing is more expensive. The latest absurdity from the state of California is a bill they're in the process of passing, which I think they probably will pass, uh, requiring all new homes to have solar panels on their roofs to generate electricity so as to help make the, the state independent of evil fossil fuels. But um, all of this is, uh, is failing to understand the idea that the whole religious doctrine of shortage belongs to the wonderful world of secular fundamentalism. Socialism gives us a vision of shortage. But I live in a world of no limits. I, will, I live in a world of limitless bountifulness. I live in a world where more people who are good people, are more people means more value and money and, and success for everybody, more resources for everybody, more public facilities for everybody, more and better defense against enemies for everybody. All of that depending on a lot of people all committed to the same cultural imperatives that built America in the first place. Uh, Paul Ehrlich literally speaks of starvation. He said there is absolutely no way. He said uh, India is going to have uh, 200, more, 200 million more people, and they can't possibly uh, produce enough food by that time. In order to feed those people, millions will starve. Well, people have not been starving in India. The uh, quality of life, including uh, calories per human being, calorie intake, been going up steadily. Why? Because we are not inert, passive mouths into which government authorities must shovel energy in the form of food. We are human beings, and to whatever extent we are given the freedom to innovate and create, the freedom not to be animalistic, but the freedom to aspire to the angel end of the spectrum and to find solutions. Well, in 1876, do you know what the average – I just came across this recently – the average yield of an American wheat field was 11 bushels per acre, right? 1876. S um, go forward 40 years to 2016, and it's now 55 bushels an acre. 
So we go from 11 bushels an acre to 55 bushels an acre, an increase of five times the productivity of the, of the most vital basic food. Isn't that something? I mean, that's, that's the world we live in, where human beings are given the ability to create the freedom. Things happen. I must tell you that um, one of the greatest problems of Africa is the United Nations. It's one of the biggest problems the continent of Africa has. Um, do you remember a guy called Norman Borlaug? I've spoken about him in a previous, thought, in a previous uh, uh, podcast. Um, he came up with special high-yield varieties of grains for Mexico and India, where in one year food productivity went up 50%, one year. Um, and so uh, Paul Ehrlich was completely wrong because he's a Marxist, he's a materialist, he's a socialist. And in that perception of the world, it's like, Thomas Malthus at the end of the 1700s, the early 1800s, Malthusian uh, thinking, said exactly the same thing. We're nothing but animals. And once you view ourselves and view us and we see ourselves as being on the animal end of the spectrum, well, then, yeah, nothing happens. You're right. Then I suppose if nobody feeds us, we will starve to death. But if, on the other hand, we are on the angel end of the spectrum and we see ourselves there, then we see ourselves as partners with God in our own redemption, in our own salvation. And we create and innovate and concoct and come up with all kinds of things that the previous generation didn't know. And our fathers and grandfathers thank us not only for economic sufficiency, which provides them with comfortable lives beyond the time they can be effective creators themselves but they thank us for an improved quality of life the grandma today who skypes across the country with her grandchildren every night thanks the next generation and the generation after that that made these things possible that's how the world really works and so be fruitful and multiply yeah absolutely and then that's the start of the job. Don't just bring a child into the world, but teach that child, educate that child, acculturate that child, and above all, give that child the values that turn the child into an angel-like creator, not an, allow the child to just develop into an animal-like consumer. And when we understand that, we're able to be ready for the most important point of all, which is that... Economic creativity knows no limit. It's interesting, by the way, that uh, for those of you interested in a biblical worldview, as I happen to be, it's interesting that throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, thing, the, word, the books known as the Old Testament, the word satisfied never applies to money. It applies to other things, food, bread, but never to money. Why? Because there isn't such a thing as enough money. Um, in a recent thought tool, I repeated the joke about the uh, the beggar who uh, uh, got to know one of his clients, right? A, a, a banker used to go by on his way to his office every day, and he'd drop a dollar into the hat of the, the beggar. One day he dropped in a quarter. The beggar said, hey, what's going on here? 
you always put in a dollar. What's with a quarter? The, the banker said, I'm really sorry, but uh, I'm having a very, very challenging business week. And the beggar says, so just because you're having a challenging week, does that mean I have to as well? And um, it's, uh, it's humorous, but there's sort of something to it in the sense that uh, there are many people who stop working. And they say, well, I'm now going to start doing volunteer work, or I'm now going to start painting pictures, or I'm now going to start uh, uh, becoming doing ministerial work. These are, I, I've, I've made enough money. I can live off my investments. I don't need to do anything else. And just because you say enough, all the people who depend on you, they also have to just live with your enough. This is not what God put us in the world to do. He put us in the world to serve our fellow human beings. And the money that follows inevitably is nothing but a certificate of value. It is a means of knowing that you have indeed served another human being. I have to tell you that um, I'm not denigrating volunteer work, but if the organization for whom you go and volunteer has a choice between having you come in and do, you'll pardon me, but very often menial work, or having you having stayed at your job or your career, at your business, your profession, and making a substantial donation, I think you know exactly what that organization would rather have. They'd rather have the money rather than your time. You like doing ministerial work. You want to paint. Great. It's a hobby. That's all. Do it in the evenings. Do it weekends. Take off one extra day a week. But nobody should think in terms of enough money. Be I know that I'm sounding as if I reject the whole notion of, oh, greed. You're sounding so greedy. No, because the making of money is not about taking. It's about giving. The making of money is all about serving other people. The money is the result of you doing it. It's not the cause of you doing it. There's a lot of material on that in uh, the books and the audio programs that I teach on, but um, it, it, it's really, really very important, very important in terms of making sure we maximize our money-making ability. Not, not, don't forget, this is terribly important, never at the expense of time and energy should, that should go to your family. Never at the expense of time and energy that should go to your faith. Never at the expense of time and energy that should go to friendships. Never at the expense of time and energy that should go to self-improvement. Of course not. But in the time that you dedicate to work and with the energy that is dedicated to your work, you should be doing the most financially productive work you could do and you shouldn't be thinking of stopping. Retirement is an unhealthy idea and a word for which no equivalent exists in the Lord's language. But you've heard me speak on that many times before. So the, uh, the, the topic is further uh, amplified in an audio program. It's a two-hour audio program on two CDs entitled Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. And uh, it explains, among, among other things, why so many biblical verses begin with a word that should never be used to open a sentence as your English teacher in middle school taught you. Um, and for those of you who are young, it's the uh, English professor at university might remember to tell you, never start a, a sentence with the word and, because a new sentence is a new idea, and and means a continuation. So why do so many sentences in the Bible begin with and? 
That is part of what I cover in Prosperity Power Connect for Success. It's a $10 digital download. You could actually have it in five minutes ready for you to benefit from and to expand your entire economic outlook, you and the people you love in your environment, in your orbits, who could benefit from these principles as well. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is just about as far as I think we should go. It's probably further than we should have gone. But let me know if you think I took things much too far in today's... Uh, I mean, I'm feeling a little insecure about it just because these are tremendously challenging ideas that maybe should have been spread over, out over 20 hours, not over one hour. I am your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lapp, and thanks for being part of the show. Thanks for telling your friends about it. And I wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I am your rabbi. God bless. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio.